We have been walking through our church's core values. If you don't know that there, there's a bulletin out there, there's a brochure rack, and they have them, but we're coming to the last one today. And core values, when they're written down as a church, really act as a guardrail in a sense where it keeps us focused on certain main things. And it, it kind of gives us a, something to shoot for. Are we perfect in all of those values? The answer is obviously no. But it does remind us and it calls us back who we are, frankly, as a church as well. And I want to read the last one that we have for today. And, and on the screen here, we, this is how it goes. We value godly leadership. Spirit-empowered leadership is essential for the health of the church. And then it lists Jeremiah 3.15 there as a, as a passage. Now, I have to confess here, it was a hard sermon to get started. Uh, Tuesday was a busy day for me, and, and uh, I, I got home late that night, and I really didn't get in, even jump into the sermon until after supper on Tuesday night. And I kind of sat there and go, what do I want to say? The assumption, we value godly leadership and the need for godly leadership, I go, that is obvious. I think if, any, if you've grown up in a church, everyone would look at that and go, yes, we need that. But here's where the challenge and the difficulty lies. When you speak of godly leadership, are you talking about pastors and hired staff in terms of godly leadership? And it's true, we have a unique role, and my role even up here is to be a voice of what's important for the church. And I confess that there's, there's a weight that, that's heavy in that at times as to communicating where we want to be as a church. Or are we talking about leadership, for example, with elders or those that are elected in the church? You think of church chairman to finances, to property, treasurer, secretary, all of those things. Is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about the different ministry positions at church? Men's, women's, worship, all of those ministries. Is that what we're talking about in leadership here, wanting godly leadership? Or... Maybe we're talking about Sunday school teachers and people that are teaching the word to our youth and children and, and in groups. Is that what we're talking about here? Is that what we mean by godly need for godly leadership? Or are we talking about parents in the need for godly leadership? Because the fact exists that if you have just even one child, you are called to be a godly leader as a parent, whether you like it or not. See, without healthy, spiritual, godly families and leaders and families, it's really impossible to actually have a healthy church without the families being healthy and have good leadership within them. Or, let me give one more. Maybe this is talking to some of you teenagers out there, young people, where God has, has put a mantle on you and he's even, you know, that he's gifted you and he desires for you to move toward godliness that, that sets the tone for our junior and senior high group. 
See, youth ministry really can't be successful unless the students themselves, there's leadership within even those ranks, come up and, and says we're going to be leaders within that ministry. So when we say leadership, who are we talking about here with this core value? And I think here's the answer. Yes, 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 and yes. That's who we're talking about. This core value applies to the many unique roles of leadership that contribute to the health of a church. So today we need to dig in just a few minutes on spiritual leadership and understand, I'm just going to scratch the surface here. You can go to a Christian bookstore, look online, and there's going to, you can pick out a hundred books written on Christian leadership, even from that perspective. So we're just going to, we're going to be kind of flying high, but I want to we want to dig a little bit into a story. And t turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Kings 19. We want to look at just a historical story, and we want to unpack those, some leadership principles from that text. Now let me back up and give you the context first but before we read the text. Elijah the prophet, you might know that name, he's gone to Mount Carmel to confront the, the wor false worship of the day. Israel wasn't doing too well. Ahab was the king at that time, and his wife Jezebel had allowed the worship of Baal, she was kind of the instigator of it, to come in, and she had set up, set up lots of worship to Baal and brought in false prophets in that sense. But Elijah says, i got to confront it. God wanted him to do this. So he sets up a challenge. And the challenge is this. He says, guys, prophets of Baal, you create an altar. We're going to have a couple of altars here and put a sacrifice on it. And then we're going to see whose God is more powerful. And so you start praying to your God and to see if your God can burn up the sacrifice on the altar without any help. And they are up to the challenge. They take and they put that bull on the on the on the altar and they begin dancing and singing and appealing to the god of baal and guess what nothing happened so elijah takes 12 stones even around the altar symbolization for israel but then he digs a ditch around the altar and, and he asked them to begin to pour water over the top of it. See, he pours water, a whole bunch of water, and it fills the trough around the altar, and he begins to pray. And all of a sudden, smack, it's all burned up. And at that moment, he has the upper hand on these prophets, and what he does is he takes these prophets, and he rounds them up, and he has them killed. And then he decides to head to a city, and, and Ahab the king is running there, going that direction as well. So he ends up in a city called Jezreel. And um, at that point, he, something happens within him, and he forgets what God has just done. Because Ahab's wife Jezebel sent word to him that if this, day by if this time by tomorrow, you're not dead. It was a threat. She wanted to behead him. And Elijah, just seeing this, 
runs into the desert and hides. Now, now I got to stop here. I, I, I don't have it in the notes, but there's actually a leadership lesson here, I, I think. And it's this Elijah was a pretty flawed leader. I don't know if you knew that. He's in the faith chapter, he's one of the great prophets, they would list him of all time for the Israel. And yet he, was, he had some flaws. He, he wasn't perfect. Uh, matter of fact, one of the issues I think that many suspect is that he struggled with depression and, and that he was kind of a half-glass-empty kind of prophet. It was kind of woe is me, and you see that even in the interaction uh, later on. So he wasn't perfect. But that, I think, gives us great hope when it comes to leadership. God still can use flawed people. But he goes into the desert, he, he, he kind of sits under a tree and goes, God, just let me die. And what God does is he sends an angel to him, wakes him up, gives him food and water, he falls back to sleep again, angel comes and gives him more food and water and says, you know what, we got a journey to take and we're going to go through the desert and we're going to go to a mountain where we're going to meet God. And, and, and this is, so he goes to a cave and he sleeps the night there. And this is where we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back to the way that you came and go to the desert to Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. And also anoint Jehu, son of Nemishi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from, from Abel Maluna, to the succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All of those knees have not bowed down to Baal, and those mouths have not kissed him. Now, in the midst of this story that we just read, there is a principle here. And I don't know if you caught it, but let me put it on the screen first if you're following along with notes. And the, and the lesson is this. God is in the business of inviting and calling people to leadership. He was anointing new kings, but in particular here, what we're going to look at, he was calling, he told Elijah, you are going to have a successor. And it's going to be this guy named Elisha. So Elijah knew what was going on. 
And he was called to anoint Elisha, who would, who would succeed him as the prophet of Israel. Now, i got to stop there and fast forward to today. Too many times people buy into the idea that a church has plenty of leaders. You know what? There's enough leadership and, and that I don't need to lead. But God is inviting and he is desiring to raise up more leaders, biblical leaders, godly leaders in churches of today. You know, I think if you talk to any pastor or leader that's invested in a church, you're going to find frustration at times because most of the time, most churches are lacking in leaders stepping up. Now, I got to be careful here. Not everyone's called to be an elder. But think of the multitude of categories within a church that need leadership. See, not only does God want godly leaders, he wants more godly leaders. And I think we need to remember that. You know, the elders spent some time in June on a kind of a mini retreat and we were gathered for prayer and just we were watching some videos actually and one of one of the videos was on kind of how much leadership do we need in our church and depending on size and it was interesting that video because he gave a stat in that a church of about 200 which is we're a little bit over 200 on a weekend but but what he stated is this, a church of 200 needs about 15 leaders plus eight leaders of leaders. So when you look at the context of, of running ministries effectively with leadership, we need somewhere around 25 leaders, very specific leaders, to make ministry happen. Do we have that? Not yet. Not yet. Let me keep going on the text. Look at verse 19. So Elijah went from there, went out of the cave, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. And he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the twelfth pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. This is a symbolic thing. He, he throws his cloak on him, meaning he's, he's going to be giving the mantle of leadership to him. But then Elisha says, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. And he said, then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied, what have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back and he took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them and he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and he gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. Now I need to stop here and point a couple pieces out from this passage. From the very fact that Elisha was using 12 yoke of oxen tells us that Elisha was coming from a very rich family. They had money. And the fact that they could slaughter the oxen for a party that he was, he was leaving and they're going to have a party and he burns the plow, meaning there had to have been other 
oxen in reserve and other plows in reserve. He had money. That family had money. Now, there was a symbolic thing here, I think, in terms of burning even the plow that he, you know, he was leaving everything. But Elisha, he wasn't finding a new career here to support himself. He could have had a very nice life, and it was, he was probably set for life as a young man. But understand that picture leads to another lesson. Number two for your notes, I said it this way. Godly leadership will always be costly. Costly. Godly leadership knows that, it, that there's a cost when you put on a mantle of leadership. For Elisha, it was given up a lifestyle of affluence for the sake of serving God and Israel there. And again, I think burning that plow was a symbolic act of saying, God, I'm, gonna, I'm abandoning my past. I'm not going to go back. I'm going to follow you and do what you want. But see, I think there's a tension of cost that will always exist in godly leadership. To be a, a good elder, it costs time, energy. To lead and be a Sunday school teacher has a price. Do we realize that? You know what? Just on a regular basis, you feel tied to the weekend, you, and then you want to be there. You learn to love your kids, and, and all of a sudden, nothing is quite as easy. And then you, during the middle of the week, you're thinking, okay, what about prep and getting ready for Sunday? And, and if, you want, if you want to take off a weekend, and, okay, where do I get a sub? All of those things, that's a cost. It costs to fall in love with children and say, I want to help them spiritually. See, to be a godly leader, there's a cost. By the way, parents, to be a godly parent and lead well, there is also a great cost, I believe. A great cost. You have to be willing to say no to things for that which is best. But let me put up another text here just to kind of add some more substance to this. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now the great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now here's the challenge. We read a text like this and we want to sugarcoat this and say he really doesn't mean what he's talking about here. And I go, be very careful when we sugarcoat the words of Jesus. See, the, he, yes, he's talking about discipleship here. But is not that, is it any less expected on leadership? I go, no, it's actually more. I think there's even a greater expectation on leadership. Now, I understand, and this, I don't think it means for me to abandon my wife. I don't think that's what God is, would say. But folks, this is true. My wife must come second to following Jesus. And I, I think she would want it that way, knowing my wife. 
But when you put this, understand this context, families, marriages, work, all the good things, jobs, all of the stuff, they all can become an idol where we're really not abandoning those things to our God. He calls us to worship, and those things actually can become an idol. See, if we've never struggled with the cost of following him, you may want to examine your your own life if you've never struggled with it. Maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus. I had to to ponder this one. Uh, It kind of took me back because sometimes the cost of leadership, you know what, it's frustrating and it's not easy. And one of the things for me, you know, as soon as, when you get placed in the role of a pastor, guess what? You don't want to miss Sundays. You don't want to be gone on too many Sundays. You want to be a part of the life of the church. But guess what? It pushes back against my marriage, time with my kids, events that are going on in the world. See, many people, especially my in-laws, think that Saturday night and Sunday are the best times to schedule family events. <laughs> Even last Sunday, we, we pulled out of here about 12.30, and, and that day we spent six and a half hours in the car for about three hours of visiting Deanna's brother from Oregon. There was a cost. But with the leadership with any role within the church, there is a cost. Spending time planning, calling people. And that bumps up into our free time. It bumps up into that which is more fun. Listening to someone that's hurting can be emotionally draining. There's a toll on those pieces, but do we, are we willing to pay that? See, taking time to lead, it will always be a cost. And you might have to give up some in the deer deer stand. You might have to give up time in the boat. You might have to give up time watching movies. All of those things, there is a cost to godly leadership. But let me push this farther. We have some teenagers here. We need junior and senior high students to become leaders. And many parents, you know that your son or daughter actually might be a leader. And the need for you as a parent is to help come alongside them and go, what does it mean for you to be a leader and actually encourage their leadership in this youth ministry? See, to be a youth leader, there will be a cost, even for students. Deanna and I... um, we have two kids, and you know Andy pretty well from preaching here a number of times. And looking back, we knew that there was a mantle of leadership on Andy. We could fig- we figured that out in fourth and fifth grade, that it was there. There was a call in his life. And he felt the expectations of, of myself and Deanna, and I think even more so of God. But Andy was a basketball player a track person, and and you know what? He could have been a much better basketball player in high school and college if he wouldn't have been a leader in student ministries. I really believe that. He said no to some things, and we helped him say no because he needed to be a part of that ministry and help lead it. 
and the benefits and paying that price for him, he would look back now and go, it was worth it. It was worth it. You know, and as a father, and Deanna would say the same, we're very proud of that he was willing to give up things that were more meaningful at the time. They could have been very important, but he gave those things up. And we saw how God built into his life during those teenage years, and God built into his heart for people and a heart for leadership within the kingdom. He was the leader in our youth ministry. It was interesting, at a class reunion this summer, uh, someone came up to him. He, he hadn't seen him in almost since he graduated. And he came up to him and says, Andy, he, he, was, he, had, he had drunk a little bit too much, so <laughs> he was a little, and he said this, you almost make me want to follow God. <laughs> but you know what? I think it spoke of what God was doing in his life as a teenager in high school. See, it, but catch this, in the non-religious world, there are very few times when one can lead and become great without selling your soul to that goal. But the fact is, in the spiritual sense of leadership, God doesn't measure great leadership by fame, being on top, or even being the best. He measures greatness by first giving up one's right and becoming a servant within the kingdom of God. Do we catch that? But let me throw you another lesson here as well. Number three, godly leadership is being available to be used by God. For Elisha, do you understand what happened? The picture here, the cloak is put on him, and he has to go. He was available at that point point. said, Elijah, I am going to follow you. But do you realize some of the questions that really are missing in this? As Elijah called him and Elijah responds by going, Elisha doesn't go, Elijah, is this going to be fun? Will this be fulfilling for my life? Will it make me happy? And, and you ponder that one, and I think Elijah said, Elisha, this isn't about happiness. Actually, you're going to have more enemies as you follow. But think of some of the other questions Elisha could, could have asked. Is this going to cost me money? What's the pay? Will this fit my schedule? You know what? Will I be home for Christmas? Okay, they didn't have Christmas there, but how much vacation time will I get, Elijah? I, I can't do without minimum of three weeks, preferably four. And, and you know what? I don't want to be too committed to too many weekends, you know. I've got to keep them open. Folks, godly leadership means availability. And that's the tension. But what's more important is the vision. It's the questions, what, God, do you want to do in me? What does he want to do in me? What's the spiritual gain for other people in leading? I, I, I couldn't help but thinking even of Paul and the attitude of Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul was not only a leader, he was a leader of leaders of leaders. When we look at his leadership style. See, I think here's the tension. It's so easy to look and figure out how not to be available. And, and we don't want to count the cost. But, and we look at the benefits. 
And at times, leadership doesn't have a lot of benefits. I'll admit that. Matter of fact, I think at times, we know we're going to get shot at as leaders. Let me put a cartoon on the screen here. Because there's some people that think leadership is about criticizing leaders. If you don't have anything bad to say about church leadership, you're not really trying. Some think this is leadership that they need to live by. But let me give you one last observation for today. Number four, godly leaders are good followers and servants. Look at verse 21. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate it, and then he set out to follow Elijah, and he became his servant. He wasn't looking to start out on top. He was teachable. The humility of saying, I just want to be with you, Elijah. Would you teach me? Would you, would you tell me how to be a godly leader, a godly prophet? Now, it's true over the years. I, I think back, and I, I know there's some people who want to be in leadership. And, and when, you ask, when you kind of dig below the surface, they enjoy the praise of people. They want to be noticed. They want success and respect from others. And so they think it's about respect and power and gaining respect, those things. But, but let me push back at that. and Look at Matthew chapter 20, another text that applies to it. And now the context of this, by the way, I'm not going to read that, but this is where James and John's mother, the sons of thunder, they, they come to Jesus and he, she bows, the mom bows before Jesus and said, I want my sons to sit on the left and to the right in your kingdom. See, there was a mom that says, I want my kids to be the upfront leaders in that sense. Now, I understand when the disciples, other 10, heard this, they were not happy with these guys, nor the, I don't think their mother. But it's at, th- at this point, there's a lesson of godly leadership that Matthew just drills home into these 12 disciples. Look at Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, and it shall be not be so among you. But whoever wants to be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever would be great among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, godly leadership starts with a surrender to servanthood. To, re- to surrender. Now, I, I got to point out, though, a nuance of this passage because being great isn't the issue here. In fact, let me put this on the screen, the phrase, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is the path to greatness. Servanthood is the path. Becoming great in the world's eyes is about being a notice, having the applause. Being great in the kingdom is about serving Jesus. It's about serving and loving others. But in this, you got to notice something here. The idea of being great isn't dismissed. I don't know if you've ever caught that in this passage before. 
Because here's the tension. In the problem with the, within the evangelical church in the United States, I think this would, this would be an accurate statement. We have way too many people that settle for becoming average leaders. And people don't work on leadership and figure out what this serving needs to look like that it, that where it can become effective. Um, anybody know a name, Howard Hendricks? Anybody, anybody in this here know that name? A couple, couple of you do. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Seminary. I heard him live a couple times. He taught at seminary well into his 80s. Uh, he passed away two years ago. And he was a great teacher, and he was a great leader. Matter of fact, if you read some of the bio, they would say that he left a legacy of over 10,000 students that were impacted by his, in his ministry at that seminary. But he said this, to become a teacher in a school, in a secular school, it takes four years of college and a degree, and oftentimes the school actually wants more training to even be better. But for a Sunday school teacher within a church, any warm body will do. And he said this, he was appalled by the willingness of churches to settle for mediocrity. Now, you got to hear me. Please don't hear this as an excuse not to volunteer. But the challenge is when, when we look at, we want great Sunday school teachers. We want great youth workers. We want great people in Kids Rock, in community groups, in leaders. We don't want average followers and average disciples. That's not what Jesus wants. He wants great leaders within our body. And are we willing to do the work to get there? Being teachable, having a heart of servanthood, learning from other people, other circumstances. Running over. Let me finish it this way. I, I look out at a crowd like this, and you know what? I think there's people here who don't think that they're a leader. And, and you may not have the spiritual gift of leading, but can I challenge you, just maybe God is inviting you and, and wants to put a call in your life just to step up and lead in some ways. It might be moving to becoming a godly dad or a godly mom in a new way. It might be that kind of leadership. But would he be willing to just kind of bow before God and say, God, what does it mean for me to grow in my leadership even as a parent or some other area that you might be serving? But then let me take it one step farther. I'm also convinced of this, that there might be people here today where God has actually put on you a mantle of spiritual leadership. There's spiritual gift of leadership. And that God is inviting you to work with a more kingdom mindset, with a greater role, to fulfill that call on your life of using that spiritual gift for the kingdom of God and for the spiritual health even of our church. And could I 
ask you to do something, would you just ponder that and uh, call me or email me and let's connect? See, God might want to develop that spiritual leadership gift even more and figure out what that means in the context of the kingdom of God. There's a call, there's a mantle of leadership on your life. We value godly leadership. And it's multifaceted, folks. It's not just elders and pastors. It's parents, it's students, Sunday school teachers, kids rock leaders, youth group leaders, the different ministries, worship, you just go right down the line. We need leadership that's growing and becoming great in the kingdom of God. Let's stop and pray.